Welcome to the season finale of Citadel Dropouts, a Game of Thrones podcast for the Daily Beast. I'm Spencer Ackerman, Daily Beast Senior National Security Correspondent. And I'm Laura Hudson, a culture and entertainment critic at Wired and lots of other places. Citadel Dropouts is a conversation between two friends and Game of Thrones fanatics, or possibly former Game of Thrones fanatics, (laughs) about how the characters and stories in that world connect with this world in terms of politics, sociology, diplomacy, feminism, and war. While we aren't a recap podcast and aren't setting out to spoil anyone, if you still care about spoilers or this show and haven't caught up yet, you should probably do that before listening. And so, Laura, I think we've got to just dive right into what I suspect is going to be the predominant discussion about Game of Thrones uh, across the entertainment-related internet through this entire week and possibly into the long night to come. Is Game of Thrones bad now? Should we give up on this? Is it irredeemable? Have we reached a point where the show has, uh, I hesitate to say, jumped the shark, so perhaps collapsed the wall? I, nice analogy. I like that. I will say that the last three episodes of Game of Thrones have been among the most disappointing I've ever watched. I will say, uh, in addition to that, however, that that the fourth episode was perhaps one of the best episodes of Game of Thrones that I've ever watched. So while I feel like we've been on a pretty steep downward slide that I can't say I feel optimistic about, um, it's hard to tell if it's just a descent or if this is a a ski jump at this point uh, where we're headed with this. But yeah, I've been incredibly disappointed with the last three episodes in ways that definitely have me worried for the way this series is going to end. I mean, it it couldn't have been said better. Episode four, the episode where uh, they have the new field of fire, the dragons, you know, set off their detonation. We basically kind of reach a point where it seems like there was some writerly exhaustion because at that point, Cersei just loses the remaining war and the show had a choice to make. Did it want to bring a finality to the Game of Thrones and then say all that really matters is is the uh, uh, the War of Ice and Fire? Or did it want to manufacture uh, some rationale for the, for the Game of Thrones to continue, having decided that by doing so, it tacitly makes that same argument, which is that the Game of Thrones doesn't matter and that all that matters is what happens um, north of the wall and now very soon south of a wall that no longer exists. And I say that because you could have had this other option open. I think we talked about this at the beginning of, of, uh, of our season, where the show would make an argument that the way Westeros is ruled and by whom determines a response uh, to the, uh, the threat beyond the wall, this you know, if you want to call it climate change, whatever, an, an actual existential threat that, that doesn't discriminate between claimants, right? But the claimants' choices about how to confront it might. Absolutely. I mean, if, if Cersei were herself in charge of all of this, uh, I suspect that her response would be, let me put it this way to you. So, for example, if there is a large natural disaster and someone is in charge of it who you generally consider to be uh, irresponsible and not interested in the welfare of the common man, you might feel less comfortable, less safe than you would if, for example, a real adult were in charge of your country. 
Indeed. You might feel different ways about that, hypothetically. And you might feel, without taking this podcast into extremely legally dubious territory that we don't endorse, uh, you might feel that if you are a real claimant to opposing this person, and this person represents a clear and present danger, then perhaps your decision to leave this person uh, on the Iron Throne and no other less metaphorical place might be an irresponsible decision that you would have to answer for when the consequences of that person's rule are laid bare. Indeed. And I want it, and I want to specify we are talking about Cersei Lannister and the Iron Throne and absolutely nothing else. I want to talk about something completely different right now, Spencer. Okay. Which is... Uh, the, you know, I've been thinking about how, you know, you and I talk very seriously on this podcast about, as we said in the intro, how Game of Thrones relates to politics and gender and culture and sociology and life. And the problem that I feel like I'm running into here is that, you know, the the show has taken such a steep decline in terms of not addressing these issues with the nuance that they once did, that it's 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 difficult to figure out how hard to take it seriously and sometimes how to discuss it. Uh, much as I imagine hypothetically being a political reporter in the Trump presidency, because what are you going to do? You kind of have to take it seriously because it's your job. And what else are you going to do? And that's the non-flippant way of addressing that question, right? Um, we run the risk when we want to really sift through the themes of this show, this story, and why they resonate and what they have to say about uh, the condition in which we live in, that when you're greeted with material like what we've gotten for the last three episodes and what, you know, it now feels like we're in for for the remainder of, of Game of Thrones for its final season, uh, it, it makes you feel like you're overthinking all of this stuff. It makes you feel like uh, you're treating it with a seriousness that it doesn't deserve because the analogies, the things that that um, you and I have been trying to accomplish on this podcast just break down because after a while you don't want to say that there really is a meaningful parallel when the stories that, that you've got, when their magnitude and direction are just so facile. And, and that's kind of where I feel like I am. But I mean, the thing about it is that I did not feel this way when the show felt more nuanced. And again, and I think the political nuance of the show is is has always felt like its skeleton yeah. to me. It's always felt like the thing that above all held it up, which I think is what makes it so difficult for me now when I sort of feel that starting to disintegrate. You know, it, it occurs to me that when the showrunners are making a decision like what to name this show and they depart from A Song of Ice and Fire uh, and choose to name this show Game of Thrones... They are making a tacit argument about what matters the most about the material they're adapting. But it, it nevertheless feels like what we've just seen is the consequence of the writers writing themselves into, the, into a corner rather than uh, the, the considered uh, paced emergence of, 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 of how this story not just barrels toward a conclusion, but what it's trying to say on the way to that conclusion. I mean, I think the worst part about it is I think that you're absolutely right that uh, Daenerys arrived at Westeros. She's essentially one. And they acknowledge that repeatedly at several different points, uh, that she's essentially one except for reasons. 
but the reasons are very bad and the strategies are very bad. Uh, and what that forces uh, the show to do is to make its characters stupid. Uh, so all of these military geniuses and master strategists all have to agree wholeheartedly to go along with the stupidest, most self-defeating, obviously poor choices because the plot requires it. And I think that that's done, it's done a lot of damage, I think, to the show and to the characters to force that kind of stupidity upon them. Uh, I just want to suggest something. Uh, because it, it, it did sort of feel when looking, especially at these three episodes, to include the finale for sure, but now back across uh, what we've seen since season one, um, I think we might have reached a situation in which a George R. R. Martin story um, has has basically jumped off the page and now life is imitating it in the sense that particularly through episodes one to four, uh, we, we thought we were getting, you know, a really quite, I think it's fair to say, incredible, fast-paced, if occasionally contrived, resolution of, of what uh, the Game of Thrones would be, its relationship to the, the, the war beyond the wall, and what that all sorts of, sort, of, sort of means. And what we've kind of found instead, after the Field of Fire, uh, is that the, the bottom just dropped out. Uh, and it doesn't just drop out in terms of elevating everything to plot contrivance, but it drops out thematically in, in a significant way. And that leads me to kind of think that, you know, if this was a kind of meta George R. R. Martin story, then the season finale of episode seven, season seven, is kind of the fan's version of the Red Wedding. The moment where we sort of feel that at least whatever we thought we were seeing and our expectations had led us to think was going to be the show that we were getting, for better or for worse, we're not getting that. We're getting something that turns out to be certainly much less satisfying, and now we have to figure out if it's ultimately something of value. So are you saying that it's, 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 it's the, the knife of the, the free soldier against your neck, this finale? Denny often Weiss and their regards. <laughs> you know, it's a funny thing. I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again because I feel like it's relevant to this conversation, which is that Game of Thrones, you know, it's it's sort of become the, the standard bearer of fantasy now. But when it originally uh, came out, it was very much about upending the thing that we thought was going to happen. You know, Ned Stark, the great hero. Oh, crap, he gets beheaded. His young son comes forth to avenge him. Oh, he dies, too, and so on and so forth. Uh, and and that worked, I think, right about up until the Red Wedding, uh, which was in Storm of Swords. And I think ever since that, you know, both in terms of the plotting of his books and in terms of the plot of the show and the way the rest of it is rolled out, it's always been a little bit dicey. We've never known quite where it was going, because how does that end? If your show is about subverting fantasy tropes, how do you have a resolution and what does a resolution look like? Do you have the great triumphant end where everything happens the way that you want mostly? Um, or, I mean, it's in, in a way, I think that you're right, that absolutely screwing people over and giving them nothing they want is, in a sense, you know, the truest Game of Thrones way of all. It's harsh, uh, but I don't mean it to be provocative for its own sake. I think... We're, you know, those of us who've, you know, lived in this fandom for a very long time and have gone along with this show, 
um, you know, now have to kind of wonder uh, if we trust this show. I think this episode tried to be smart in a couple of instances. Uh, although I would say that those disappointed me as well because they still weren't quite as smart as the show thought that they were. Uh, where they said, that stupid thing we did, you know, it, not quite as stupid as you thought. And I'll give them that. Not quite as stupid. Uh, I still wouldn't say smart. Uh, and of course, we come back at the end uh, to the tr- the two primary strategies of, of the two remaining queens and how mind-bogglingly nonsensical those two remain. So there's the, the moment between John and Danny where, you know, Danny just, she's, you know, she's stuck between a rock and a hard place. What's she going to do? She says, I can't forget what I saw north of the wall. And I can't pretend that Cersei won't take back the country the moment I ride north. She's saying this at a moment when she is sitting right at King's Landing with absolute all her dragons, all her unsullied, all of her Dothraki soldiers at the one place that she ultimately has to end up to end this fight. And she just says, you know, I don't know what I could possibly do. I feel like I just don't have any choices. Spencer, why? 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 Why does she not just fight them there at that time? Isn't that am I am I am I missing something? Is there something I I just don't understand as someone who's not well versed in military history and strategy and theory here? There is one thing. It's one thing alone. They don't actually address it on the show at all, but it's it's the only argument I can make here and I I think unfortunately because where you're going with this is the satisfying answer that we'll talk about in a second the obstacle here, uh, which is that if she takes the opportunity with all of her enemies and absolutely no civilians uh, in the dragon pit to stage the actual resolution of the Game of Thrones that she has an opportunity to stage, then she's Walder Frey. Then she has essentially pulled off uh, an ambush under the boundary of a, of a peace banner. She's, she's essentially used, uh, an opportunity where everyone agrees they are there to negotiate, uh, and treats that frivolously. And this is why you can't do that. I'm glad you, you brought this up because this is something that every now and then comes up in the form of why is Walder Frey and Tywin Lannister wrong at the Red Wedding? When you hear, you know, Lord Tywin say to Tyrion, menacingly explain to me why it is more noble uh to kill 10,000 men on a field of battle than 12 people at dinner and this is the answer if you violate the predicate of diplomatic immunity particularly when you have um a circumstance where you are trying to negotiate either a peace or an armistice and you use that to military advantage then something even more profound then that betrayal happens at that moment. You weaken the norm that such an in-person negotiation is possible. And then when you do that, it has a cascading effect where that it's actually not possible, where at least when you're trying to figure out about how you end a war or at least pause it, you have to at least consider in your mind that there's a non-zero chance that this norm is eroded to the point where you will be killed and it's not worth doing. And at that point, every war is an existential war. You fight everything to the very bitter end, and that is essentially going to cause a catastrophe for all mankind. I mean, I, I have a few things to say about that. One is that I think you're absolutely right, and and we do see the repercussions in previous seasons of the violation of guest right. 
you know, this idea that once you share bread and salt, that, you know, that you're insulated from being harmed, uh, which I, you know, I think has been a valuable social, political, military space throughout Westeros in a lot of instances. And that's why so many people remark upon it, you know, in the succeeding seasons after that happens. Um, I would have loved to have seen, you know, what you suggest, some four-way conversation maybe between Varys, Tyrion, Danny, and Jon, where they discuss uh, the pros and cons of potentially executing their own Red Wedding and the political implications of that. I think that would have been fascinating and much more interesting than what happened. Um, we do see Jon say something, well, you know, not we can't all lie because then words mean nothing, which is sort of the dumbed down, slightly sideways version of that conversation that isn't as politically interesting. Um, but finally, I would also suggest that even if they honored the original terms of, um, you know, whatever white flag they were flying when they had that conversation in the dragon pit, let Cersei go back to the castle, then attack it. Why not? Why not do that? You could honor that and then still fight your battle. Do it right there. You're right there. Are you going to be in a better position later? No, you're not. You're right there. God, it's maddening. It's maddening that we have to, I think, sort of, you know, give up plausibility, which is, you know, an amazing thing to say about a show that features, you know, dragons and ice zombies. But, you know, by the internal logic of what we've seen, you know, this show be in the past, you would have expected that someone within uh, Daenerys's council is going to make some counter argument that matters. That's going to, you know, say something on the order of how are these armies supposed to fight together? What's the command structure? How do they integrate? How can we guard against uh, some revanchist or ulterior motive? How do we set up mechanisms for information sharing? You know, I, I, any, any army is going to have to engage in that. And, you know, you, we've established the, the, the lack of trust that, that pervades here. Um, it, it, it just, it, you would expect whether it's Varys, you know, in, in a moment of his practic practicality or, or someone else, um, Davos, you know, who, who is, who is very good in these types of moments to just at least raise the natural points of objection that this strategy once executed can't really stand on its own terms and doesn't get you to where you, where you want. And the fact that, we don't get that is kind of a tacit indication that the writers couldn't come up with something or didn't bother. Well, I think that's why we don't see those conversations happen. You know, later on, we see Jamie talking with his soldiers independently, figuring out how their armies will later integrate so that Cersei can show up and say, ha ha, you fool. Um, but, you know, in reality, if that was something they decided upon, uh, the leaders of both of their armies would get together, right, and work out what that meant. Because I imagine that would be incredibly dangerous and complicated uh, and, and something that they would need to work out step by step. We don't see any of those conversations. They just sort of agree that they'll both fight in the north and then everyone goes home. Why don't they do that? Because actually doing that is incredibly fraught and a stupid idea. And I don't know how you watch that conversation happen without somebody saying that. Yeah, I mean, to take one example off the top of my head, you know, with all of the Russia-Trump stuff, uh, there's an added complication. You can read a piece that I reported a couple months ago about Michael Flynn proposing such a plan like this. But uh, there's been, um, you know, over, over Syria, uh, a communications channel uh, tactically uh, for uh, the U.S. and Russian militaries operating in Syria 
to ensure that there's not either uh, a midair collision in congested airspace um, or an engagement on one another's proxies, um, not always uh, something that, that actually works in practice. But nevertheless, the reason why I bring it up is that it, it, it shows the ways in which very tentatively uh, militaries in the same area that don't trust one another, particularly institutionally, uh, have to kind of come to terms with one another. And it's a very laborious process. It's just a non-starter, and, and it's, it's hard really uh, to take seriously. Whereas, you know, and now, you know, now that we know that Cersei's, you know, going to betray them, like, at a certain point, you know, John's people uh, at various, you know, military outposts, aka castles along the way, are going to, you know, send word, by the way, the Lannister armies aren't coming. Uh, so it's not really like there's, there's a lot of stealth to Cersei's plan. She can't really, you know, make this betrayal a secret for very long. Um, and I guess she's gambling that, uh, it's not really going to be enough to deter, um, the, the Stark and, and Targaryen forces from the fight northward. But it sort of, you know, illustrates a kind of truth about where Cersei is now versus where Daenerys is. Um, through the cliche that, you know, when you're running away from a bear, you don't have to be faster than the bear. You have to be faster uh, than the other poor bastard running away from the bear. And that's kind of where Cersei is. Like, the strategy that she's uh, pursuing, um, essentially bargain for a breathing space that she will then use to reconsolidate an attack, is exactly what we would expect from her. It's the most predictable thing that we've probably seen throughout season seven. It is predictable and indeed predicted, repeatedly predicted. Um, you can't really fault her for pursuing it, given that uh, Tyrion gave her a lifeline, whatever she wants to think about him. I mean, Cersei straight up says it. I mean, again, I, I feel like one of these, one of the notable things about these last three episodes is how blunt they've been. You know, there's there's no circumlocution. There's no necessarily being subtle. Everyone just says who they are in in the bluntest possible way over and over again. And we hear Cersei say, I don't care about checking my worst impulses. I don't care about making the world a better place. Hang in the world. And that's the thing, too, where it's like I, I we'll get a little we'll get into this a little bit more later. But there are a number, quite a number of uh, unbelievable moments in this episode and, and moments when characters act in unbelievable ways. One of the most unbelievable to me is that anyone believes Cersei, especially Tyrion. Oh, yes. I mean, and, and, and frankly, the fact that so many people immediately see a single zombie and say, holy shit, all of my oaths, all of my loyalty to my house, every earthly attachment that I have, screw it all. I have seen a zombie. Listen, a dragon just landed next to you five minutes earlier. It's much larger and scarier, you guys. And that's the thing. They don't know. They don't know for sure how many zombies they are, there are. They don't know in what ways they multiply. They have just seen a zombie, a single zombie. And I, I, I do not buy the fact that it just it absolutely makes everyone completely lose their mind in a world where there are dragons and magicians <laughs> and death and death gods and people come back from the dead. And just I just don't believe it, Spencer. I don't. I want to, but I don't. Let's come to this moment from the perspective of someone 
who has no knowledge. Oh, you mean you mean Cersei who brought a dude back from the dead as a Frankenstein monster that guards her constantly? Also, did you see like Kyburn kind of get like a science boner when he sees the the zombie? Oh yeah, he got super excited. I will say again that the plan has never made a lot of sense because again, one zombie just convinces someone that zombies exist. It convinces no one of the scope or nature of the threat. Period. Full stop. However, I will say that Cersei's plan does make sense because it involves lying to people. Believing them, not believing them, we can kind of be either way on that. I believe Cersei would lie, so I actually think that is the most believable thing that happened in this episode. Do you think that we're actually confronting with that with that scene a kind of like Sorkin-esque saccharine liberal wishful thinking in which like we're finally going to present you with like ironclad evidence that man-made climate change is real and that absolutely every negative consequence that the science for the last 25 years has predicted is coming to pass and like maybe it just made landfall over texas um and like the people on the other side of that argument you know your exxon mobiles or something are just going to say in, like, a laconic Rex Tillerson-esque accent, yeah, they was right. You know, like, no. Like, this is, this is absolutely insane. This is, this is, like, a pure liberal fantasy that somehow the people on the other side of this argument are not pursuing an interest that they identify as fundamental to themselves. I mean, it's funny you bring up Sorkin. I used to refer to those as Sorkin's cocaine moments <laughs> uh, where, no, it just, there's no way they made sense unless everyone was high. Where just, they would gather around in circles and say that they served at the pleasure of the president and like really stick it to the other side. And then, you know, they'd kind of, you know, slowly admit that they were wrong or, or join forces in a particularly liberal, self-satisfied way. Um, it, what we're talking about is wish fulfillment. Yeah. Aaron Sorkin was liberal wish fulfillment. Um, and in a way, like, yeah, what Cersei offers to uh, Tyrion, her brother, who trusts her zero, is a sort of wish fulfillment of what he and what Daenerys would like to believe uh, a a a good and moral and sensible ruler would do, and that's why I don't understand why they believe it. Like, are they having a cocaine moment? Is that what's happening? I don't understand any other rationale. Why would you believe that Cersei would not only agree to it, but to agree to it so so wholeheartedly? I know she does the she faints, you know, she does the the back and forth a little bit. But she absolutely goes in and says, my force is with yours, 100% with you. I know maybe you won't give me credit for that. But listen, like, I just think it's the right thing to do. That I, if anything, again, I think that is is core Cersei, truthful Cersei, because it's stupid. Yeah. Because is she, I could see her miscalculating and being like, oh, I should just really go all the way out there and, and, and pretend that I'm doing the right thing here. What I don't understand, again, is why anyone believes something that is so ham-fisted and so obvious and so completely out of character for her to do. All I got really is that sometimes we really, truly convince ourselves uh, in a sort of uh, hysterical rationality that um, the other person doesn't actually believe the thing that they're saying or, you know, would have to come to see your side 
as just naturally correct. And the world doesn't work that way. People don't reason that way and they don't change their minds that way. Um, and it's just the height of arrogance that you would believe that because Cersei for her own interests is right in this scene. She knows that, you know, a, a Targaryen uh, restoration means her death, means her brother's death, probably means her child's death. She, even if she has any reason to doubt that, all of the constellation of forces aligned against her, as well as the inclinations of what she would do if she was in that circumstance, militate towards, you know, an irreconcilable state. There's an even worse moment where, you know, at least Daenerys is just talking about a truce. John, at one moment, one inexplicable moment, refers to it as them being there to make peace, which is, which is really losing the plot. All I would say about Cersei here is that the army of the dead against the Stark Targaryen forces is essentially, you know, from an American perspective, the Iran-Iraq war. Or, you know, there was an argument um, about how to respond to the Syrian civil war, uh, which people will probably debate forever. I, I have found no evidence this has actually had purchase in either the Obama administration or the Trump administration, but I think historians will probably wonder if there wasn't at some point something to this, uh, which is that, like, you know, from the perspective of American security, why not just let ISIS battle it out with Assad, um, let you know, all sorts of, of Iranian proxies who you're trying to weaken in the region anyway, um, as well as perhaps um, the more radical forces supported by, by you know, Qatar and Saudi Arabia as well, uh, exhaust themselves uh, and leave them, you know, in a position where uh, they're ultimately too weak to affect your plans. Obviously, the reason why you don't do that is that, you know, the consequences is millions and millions of human beings, and that's unconscionable. Um, or at least, you know, most people observing, you know, a circumstance like that will recognize that it's uh, unconscionable. But, you know, there are some rather ruthless uh, engineers of statecraft and Cersei Lannister is one of them. And that's all I'd really say about, you know, where she's coming from on this. That, that actually is something uh, that has a lot of parallels uh, with, with, with things that we see in the real world. Well, and, and another thing, here's a, here's a theme that I think actually is interesting within the context of Game of Thrones that I saw sort of come to the fore, uh, which is, you know, Cersei lies, no big surprise. And what does Jon do? Jon remains Jon, uh, and he compulsively tells the truth to a self-destructive degree. He is, and even Tyrion comes to him at one point and says, have you ever considered learning how to lie. It's it's as though he's constitutionally incapable of it. And within the context of John, you know, particularly when it's followed up with that Cersei Jamie scene where she says, of course I lied, of course, of course I lied, you know, we see truth as a liability. Um, but I think in 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 the scene we see later at Winterfell, uh and, and what happens between Littlefinger and the the Stark kids, uh we see that there are actually very uh there are smart ways to be truthful and there are stupid ways to be truthful. Um because you know what I think Sansa does and Arya does and Bran does, the three Starks who have learned to be the politically smartest of all three of of all of them, of anyone involved with that family, um, you know, they they end up uh, revealing the truth about Littlefinger in a in a particularly dramatic way, but they do it with a little bit of what I assume is spycraft. They do it by using a little bit of deception 
in the pursuit of eventually revealing the truth in the right context. Uh, and I think that that's an interesting contrast between sort of the, the, the Ned Johns of the world and the Arya slash Sansa slash brands. Interesting how brand evidence is admissible in court. <laughs> Like, you'd think one of them is like, wait a minute, how did he actually know that? Like, doesn't Littlefinger have a valid point that no one was there to see that? You know, something worth, you know, pointing out. We had, um, I had kind of miscalled uh, that scene with, with Arya's reunion with Nymeria, the wolf, earlier on. Uh, because I thought when, you know, Nymeria seems to be too feral uh, to follow Arya, Arya was kind of setting up uh, this circumstance where, like, she goes back to Winterfell and she finds she's too wild. She doesn't really have a home. And that's the reason why her, her familiar, her kind of stark soul reacted in the way uh, that, that it did. But now we know that that, didn't, that interpretation, certainly, um, of that scene doesn't apply. It's not, it doesn't foreshadow anything. In fact, it, the, the show kind of goes in the opposite direction. So I don't know how to read that scene anymore. I, I, I think that I, the reason your interpretation was so persuasive was because I think it actually made the most sense. I think, you know, the, the wolves have always been sort of the, the spirits, the representation thematically of so many of the star kids, which is why they tend to die when they die. Uh, or disappear when they disappear uh, in most instances. Um, and it, it seemed like it was absolutely saying something about Arya, and yet we saw her go the other way. You know, it's the previous episode you and I complained a bit about um, how inauthentic the fight between Sansa and Arya was. And now, oh, it turns out it was all a plot, you know, like the Scooby team took down that lastardly little finger, <laughs> uh, although they don't explain it at all. Um, which is one of the unfortunate things about it. Where And it also, again, feels like the show now at this point where they set up a big dramatic moment that feels like this cool reveal, but like, how did it happen? Why did it happen? What were the exact mechanics of that? We don't know. Did Bran see... Because they seem to have a lot of knowledge about things that didn't happen. Did they get it all from Bran? Did he, you know, wheel himself out from under the tree and decide to suddenly start sharing everything? Yeah. How long had they been plotting it? How long had they been working together? I mean, I'm all for, like, the, the Stark super teams teaming up to, you know, take down Littlefinger or anybody else they want. And, you know, honestly becoming becoming the, the leaders that I, I think that their father couldn't be in many ways. Like, I think that's super exciting. I just wish I, it made more sense. And I understood what had happened at all. Uh, I did kind of like uh, Littlefinger trying to go out screaming fake news um, and, and crying uh, like a Nazi who has to turn himself in in Charlottesville. There are a lot of Littlefinger diehards because uh, he really does seem so in control. But really here, you know, if you've got, you know, this uh, this bit of advice, these life lessons you want to dole out about how you you know you fight every battle, you anticipate every circumstance. Well, you you walked into a gigantic trap, um, and and it just sort of diminishes Littlefinger as a character that this would be the way he goes out, right? I mean, that's the problem again with what happens here with Littlefinger and the way that he goes down is that it too is unbelievable. One, because he is specifically equipping his protege with the exact advice she needs to take him down, which I don't think he's stupid enough to do. 
And two, because of the the specific ways in which he tries to provoke Sansa's paranoia about Arya. What does he try to convince Sansa that Arya is trying to do? He's trying to convince her that Arya secretly wants to be the Lady of Winterfell. Have you met her at any point? In time, it's the exact opposite of everything she has ever wanted to be, and what every single person who has met her would tell anybody that she has ever wanted. If he has, and and I don't believe that he would go down that particular path without having done some research, without having some sense that this was a dynamic that would be persuasive between these two sisters. He picks something that, you know, I, I think on its face is ridiculous. That doesn't feel emotionally true. That that doesn't feel realistic in any way. And I don't think he's stupid enough to do that. So, yeah, I was disappointed that he went down in a way that that's the thing. When when you have a villain that's as good as Littlefinger, you don't want them to go down stupid and you don't want them to go down easy. And I'm a little disappointed that he did. Did you notice how the Knights of the Vale are, you know, all along the walls of 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 the the great hall of winterfell and they're not moving they're not coming to any you know little finger rescue all of that says that at some point that we haven't seen sansa successfully ran this by whether it's yon royce or someone else you know high up in the vale and this somehow escaped little finger's surveillance network somehow sansa is able to successfully conspire with the people Littlefinger is relying on to, in a literal sense, keep him alive. And Littlefinger hasn't learned about this. They're clearly not springing that on the veil right then. Uh, Sansa makes an excellent, excellent, excellent order of operations for her, you know, uh, indictment of Littlefinger that starts out with he betrays the veil, he betrays Liza Aaron, he betrays John Aaron, who even if you don't like Liza, you like John. And then he betrays Ned Stark. So the Vale and the North are all knit together. Sansa, whatever the circumstance that led us to this improbable moment, handles it perfectly to the point where, again, it, it, it strains credulity that this would have, A, as you say, not occurred to Littlefinger that he had placed all of his enemies in one place that he can't escape. And then secondly, that this could have occurred with the veil involved in him not knowing about it. And I mean, I could theoretically get down with the possibility that Arya could be uh, surreptitious enough to do that. Clearly she was, and this was all kind of a, a subterfuge that they had going on. I kind of would have liked to have seen that. I feel the way I feel about a lot of things in this show, that they gave us a bunch of bullet points. I feel like we got a cool reveal and then a couple of bullet points, which vaguely indicated that some stuff had happened. That's not the show. Like, it's it's not the show. And, and so it's really kind of hard to know how to talk about it. Okay, you know what I'm going to ask you? This is a this is sort of a, I'll call it old Game of Thrones question. Because it's a question that has endured within me from, you know, uh, B, <laughs> BS7, before season seven. Um <laughs> Do you think Littlefinger uh, knew about or was complicit with the death of Catelyn Stark? Because we see that moment where he gets down on his knees and he says, you know, I loved your mother with all my heart since I was a boy. I, and I loved you. And we also see Sansa acknowledge that in his own way that she thinks that he did love them as much as he could. I've always wondered if he was complicit. 
with with the red wedding if he knew about it if he did anything to stop it it's it's the only real moral question i've ever had about him whether he knows about it or not once he finds out about it he doesn't ever address it i think perhaps a plausible way of looking at littlefinger is is really to ask you know what for a conniver and a pimp does love mean you know like i can see littlefinger you know, being, you know, the guy mad online that uh, the the woman he's convinced himself he loves, you know, doesn't want him. And then, like, doesn't really internalize that in any other way except to, like, express, like, bitterness and bile outward and, like, hurt people because of it. Um, I've always found it kind of strange that, like, we can know what Littlefinger is and believe that the way he loves Liza and the way he professes to love Sansa remotely looks the way you or I or anyone not, you know, pathological considers love to behave, you know? I mean, I mean, I would I would paint him in maybe more of the the role of a narcissist um, where I, I think that at the end of the day, everything revolves around him. You know, that's something they say about narcissists. They love their children, perhaps, to the extent that their children are extensions of themselves. They might love individuals in their lives to the extent that they are extensions of themselves that gratify them in particular ways. Uh, they might strive to protect them uh, for those reasons. Is that love? Um, you know, does, does, does a narcissist love his children? Uh, do, do they love their spouse or do they love what they do for them? Do they love what they represent to them? Do they love what they can potentially give them in one way or another? Uh, I, I, I think that that's something who, you know, people who have been abused psychologically by people who are sociopaths and narcissists eventually have to contend with is, were they, were they ever loved? Was this person ever potentially even capable of love? And, and what does that look like? And if, better question, if someone says that they love you, and even if they mean it, if their behavior in psychology uh, makes them fundamentally unable of representing something like love to you, does it really matter? I, I think it doesn't. And I think certainly proof that it doesn't, you know, comes, even if, if we're not, you know, willing to, to get on that, that point about Littlefinger and, and, and Catelyn, and the Red Wedding, which I think we should, I think you're right, like that whether he knows about it or not and goes along with it, and I can see a case for him going along with it because he, you know, he wants to punish Catelyn for not, uh, for not choosing him. He sells Sansa to the Boltons. Like he does. He, he doesn't love Sansa. He wants to pimp Sansa. He, he wants Sansa to believe that she is fundamentally dependent on him and has acted consistently throughout the show in that regard. He just needs Sansa to think of her as, for lack of a, for, for lack of a better term, a daddy. And a daddy in the pimp sense, not a daddy in, in, in the Ned Stark sense. Um, and I think, you know, we, we see, uh, you know, this was, this was certainly the moment where, you know, if Sansa ever bought into that, she she just she annihilates it and and that's a satisfying conclusion the steps that it took to get there just no like not that 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 not little finger 
Yeah, I mean, again, like the moment itself. And again, like that's why I think of so much of this season as a season of bullet points. The bullet point where they, you know, Sansa stands up and Arya executes Littlefinger and, you know, the, the super Stark teens high five, all for it. 100 percent. It's it's just the the weird narrative hopscotch that we had to do to get there um, because that matters. Um, I think, you know, at the end of the day, that's one of the things about Game of Thrones that that has mattered the most, that we buy into this world about dragons and ice zombies and death gods because it coexists with this this narrative that is complex and nuanced enough to make it feel meaningful. And if if you don't have that, you don't have the other thing. You you lose your ability to suspend your disbelief, because I, I, I think that's what has led all of us to to buy into it as much as we have. Speaking of which, you and I had 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 previously discussed the the, <laughs> the many out of character moments Woo. that we saw throughout this episode. Would, would you just. Would you care to briefly run through those with me? I, I think so, um, especially because we don't want this episode uh, to be, you know, turgid like previous seasons of Game of Thrones. Um, John and Theon. Jesus. So to, to do this is kind of like a lightning round. This idea that, like, John is willing to forgive Theon for essentially engineering or, or implementing the circumstances for which, like, his beloved older brother dies. That's insane. Um, clearly, you know, we learn... I don't... Honestly, I have no... Does John even know that Bran's alive? Um, they they may have sent him a raven. Again, that's uh. one of the many things we're not clear about. But also remember that a, a episode or two before, John grabs, you know... Yeah. Theon by the, the throat or whatever and says that he would have killed him. He's ready to kill him except for how he saved Sansa. And now he's become this perfect, you know, Zen center of the universe that's ready to forgive him and tell him he's really part Stark and part Greyjoy. And, you know, they're all they're all one. Everything is one. What are you talking about, John? What are you talking about? I just. Oh, and, and like now, like it's this moment where like Theon learns to forgive himself now that he has this this, you know, uh, this sense of, of peace this forgiveness granted to him uh, by someone he respects um, to the point where like after his powers of not having testicles for the other guy to kick, uh, you know, gives him this edge. His super no ball power that allows him that allows him to win that battle is that because there's this the penis theory of war that we get in this episode that not having a penis or balls makes you a better fighter. How do you feel about that as our military expert in this podcast, Spencer? So many moments talking about dicks. Dicks. So why? But it's, it is. It's a show that's obsessed with dicks. We should have said this last week when, like, Tormund is like, nope, it's pussy for me. Oh, God. You know, what an opportunity missed where, like, you could have had, like, you know, those beyond the wall like show that they're not honestly hung up about who people have sex with. Well, cause if they, if they'd stop right before that, where, where Tormund says, Dick, I like it. Exactly. And then it's like, no, just stop. Cut away, cut away, cut to the next scene. You've done it. You've done it. You've written a great scene. 
Um, but no, it, it all comes back. It all comes back to the dick and no one can calm down about it at all ever. And like Theon, after he wins this battle and, and convinces them, they're like, we're going to go save my sister, like actually gives himself a literal baptism. Oh my God. Like he takes the water from the sea that, you know, both in our, in, in, in our Western culture and in, uh, this ironborn, you know, drowned God culture symbolizes rebirth. Uh, and now, you know, Theon, you know, is cured of years of torture and learned helplessness. Uh, we've discussed earlier on the show how much I, I hate that idea that they're they're being extremely frivolous with trauma survivors and what they're doing with Theon and kind of gussying it up in this way that's supposed to be a kind of facile narrative about like reclaiming your life that, you know, no trauma survivor uh, is, is going to find um, – familiar to them and, and, you know, probably, uh, in many cases we'll, we'll find it, um, offensive in, in, in how frivolously it's being presented. Well, I mean, prior to this, I actually had liked how it was handled in the sense that it, it was a part of Theon that persisted, uh, beyond his rescue, beyond everyone wanting him to be better. Um, but in this scene, we sort of see that really what he needs to get healed from his trauma is to, uh, get punched and punched and punched and punched and punched again and continue to get up. And it appears, uh, and and also to not have a penis, and uh, to win a fight. And that seems to have cured him. Yeah, I mean, just the less said about this, the better. All I would just do to, to kind of, you know, bring into somewhat more relief how, how you know, uh, unsatisfying and, and implausible this is, is that the Ironborn, they're even saying on the show, uh, have through the Targaryen Alliance committed to a wholesale social re-engineering of what it is to be ironborn. And that in order to get that small group of ironborn back on board with that mission, Theon's gotta, by all existing rules of the iron iron culture that they're trying to wholesale replace, fight and kill a guy who's trying to kill him, who even actually like says it several points, like, I don't even want to kill you, dude. Like, do we really have to do this? And, you know, Theon decides, like, yeah, we got to do this, and then we do it. It was, uh, it oh, was, yeah. it was Drek. Um, so that's one thing completely implausible. Uh, Tyrion. Let's talk about Tyrion for a second, because this bothered me as a character note as, as much as anything, where he walks in to, you know, have this big talk with Cersei that he's worried is going to end in, like, his execution. Um, and, you know, we, we see him pull this weird melodramatic crap with Cersei where he's just like, just kill me, Cersei. Just say the word. Have just have him cut my throat right now. And you're like, what what are you talking about? Tyrion is just, he's the guy who makes, you know, the dry, witty, sardonic comment from the corner, even when he's on trial for his life, even when he's been enslaved, even when he's in the worst circumstances possible. He's not the dude that flies off the handle with, like, histrionic declarations. He's the dude who makes the sort of, the, he has the wry commentary about this and that. It was just such a, it was, it was just such an off character note. It really bothered me. And, you know, what he expects to get out of Cersei uh, through an assault based on sentiment is completely foreign to me. I, I, I. You know, after we discussed last week that, you know, Tyrion as a strategist um, was was kind of a, 
uh, a non-starter when we think about, you know, how, how many things he's done that have failed since Blackwater Bay in terms of, you know, setting a, a sensible strategy. I, you know, I've, I've tried to kind of like go back and argue against myself to, to test how, you know, the argument works or, you know, succeeds or fails. And the one thing I come back to as a way of sort of salvaging Tyrion is thinking, well, at least, you know, he, he truly understands his family and like that is a strategic asset. But here, no, like he misreads Cersei so fundamentally like begging that, no, he didn't mean for Cersei's children, whom he also loved, to die. Like what that basically just makes him incompetent and powerless at a negotiation in which he's got to persuade Cersei of something. It 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 just was such a shame to see the two best actors on this show who've succeeded the most in scenes where it's the two of them acting against one another having no material uh, upon which to base another, you know, at that point, like pretty pivotal scene or a scene that needed to be pretty pivotal. Yeah. And again, you, you consider the history that exists between Tyrion and Cersei. Consider also that this is a show for this entire season that has just gotten boner after boner about putting characters that had histories with characters from previous seasons into the same room and saying, hey, hey, hey. This, I would say, of all mashups, of all possible matchups, that this is possibly one of the most fraught, one of the relationships with the most history, with 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 the most axes to grind, with, with the most to lose on both sides. That could have been a truly incredible scene uh, to watch those dynamics play out between those two people when when the stake of the world is 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 what they're talking about. And instead we got <sighs> Tyrion weirdly half crying and telling her to have a zombie cut his throat and weeping about children and just making no sense at all. And it's just, God, it's just such a disappointment. And then we also get Cersei uh, in another weird, unbelievable moment, threatening to kill her other brother. Like, and that's the thing we get both Jamie and Tyrion being like, kill me, Cersei, just kill me. Just Scarlet O'Hara over the top dramatic with these guys she doesn't kill either of them, but she, like, threatens to kill Jamie, And I don't, I don't understand the weird aggression that the show insists on having her display towards Jamie for absolutely no reason. Um, and her, the idle threats that she appears to make to him, again, for absolutely no reason. Here's what I'm going to say about this without offering any spoilers. There, there are some prophecies that exist in the book that haven't been mentioned in the show. I think they relate to this, and I think that the reason Jamie left directly relates to the way his story ends. And that's why I think it happened. And it, it, was, it was weird. They came up with a contrived reason for it. But that bullet point exists and has been written. Uh, it is known at the end of the story by George R. R. Martin, and that's, that's why this happened, and that's why it feels stupid and weird. It is plausible also that now, you know, we do have Jamie expressing – the realism against Cersei of first that, you know, they're already defeated. They're just about, you know, figuring out how this actually ends, you know, by the dragons at the Field of Fire or by the one dragon at the Field of Fire. And now, you know, Jamie sees that, you know, climate change is real and he's the, you know, the guy at Exxon who thinks that, that you know, the company is going to go into like weird terraforming or like extreme, you know, carbon emission reduction 
against all of its interests and then like have to be horrified when the CEO says like, no, of course we're not doing that uh, in order to give, you know, Jamie perhaps something um, next season to, uh, to reckon with. I don't, I, I don't know how we come back from this. I think, I think that's a, that's a great question on the whole. Here's, here's all, here's what else, here would be my final summation of it. I didn't even enjoy watching Daenerys and John Bone. <laughs> and I have wanted to see them bone for a very long time, Spencer. Have you I written just, fanfic about this war? I have I have not. I okay. have not. I have not. But I have wanted to see this war a long time. And that's the thing is they technically deliver on so many things. Like, oh, and just that moment where they're like, John is not actually Ned Stark's son. John is the son of Rhaegar Targaryen and Lyanna Stark. His name is Aegon Targaryen. And you're like, all right, guys. I feel like you have written the true fan fiction in this scenario. And then they bone on a boat. They bone on a boat. And like, that's how I feel about this, that scene, about this whole episode, about at least half of the season. You're right. You got them to bone on a boat. Congratulations. You did it. You did it. <sighs> What did you think about the chemistry between those two actors this season? I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with their chemistry. I think that both of those actors could have pulled it off. Um, I think that their romance was weirdly rushed and uneven. So we didn't even get to feel any sense of anticipation about it. Uh, I thought that the tension around that was poorly built up. Any tension that existed only existed in my mind from having read it in the books. If If I had only seen that on the show, I don't think I would be excited about it. Why is Tyrion standing around for that long? Oh, I know. And why is he like, dude, and he like boned half the prostitutes in King's Landing, if not more. And he's like standing outside their room while they're having sex, like looking weird and sad. Like, what are you, what are you doing, man? It's kind of creepy. It's extremely creepy. And (laughs) like, was, was Tyrion sort of supposed to be our audience stand in? Did, you know, John just send that, that 3 a.m. text? You up? Danny, you up? Um, no, like, and that's the thing is, I, I feel like, again, the show has smoothed out its intricacies to the point that I don't know what he's supposed to, is he upset because he cares about Daenerys' feelings or John's feelings or he's concerned about what this means politically? He knows that Starks, like, get real serious when they bone <laughs> or, like, I don't, I, I, I have no way of telling what he is concerned about in that scene. And that's a problem. Is it more satisfying to you, you know, taking up that, that line about Starks getting more serious when they bone? Is it a better story if it's like, you know, John as clingy boyfriend and to Daenerys, he's like another Dario Naharis? Or is there like this, this got to go with this like diplomatically necessary alliance? That's the thing is, I think that they've encouraged the sense of like, oh, but he's not like the other boys, you know, <laughs> because he's he's. He's, you know, he's the king in the north and he's come back from the dead. And but, you know, that's the thing is, I feel like, again, that's something that the show is telling us more than it's showing us, because I don't feel like I've seen that. I don't see why he's more special to her than Dario was, maybe more politically advantageous, but I don't see why he's more special. Yeah, that's the difference. I mean, at least Dario loved her. Mm -hmm. They're, They're just sort of around together. They think they're attractive and like politically it makes a lot of sense which is which is a fine enough reason but like let's not pretend that it's love right exactly and like you know i hope they don't you know kind of go that that route that like a love affair sprouts that 
you know, I, I kind of liked the way in the books they certainly talk, perhaps the show as well, about, you know, Catelyn describing how she didn't really know Ned and they had to work over time to build a relationship and eventually, you know, trust emerges and then love emerges and then, you know, they get to where they are. And I thought, like, you know what? You know, you, you guys had, you know, you guys were relationship goals, definitely. And, you know, did, did, did John and, and Danny get there? Does Danny want to get there? Or is this more just like, let's go on a bit of a dry run, so to speak, see if this, see if this alliance makes sense. And honestly, if it doesn't, eh, no, no strings attached. I mean, I, I think if they end up getting married, it'll be because it's politically advantageous, not because they like to bone, which is Rob's mistake, by the way. Definitely. But, you know, I, I will share a closing thought with you about love, Spencer. Please. Which is, you know, I've, I've loved the show for a very long time. I think over a decade. I've obsessed about it. I've, I've, I've gone as, as, as deeply inside of it as I feel that, that one person can go into another thing. Um, but, you know, I, I think I also have enough experience as a person to know that you can love someone as, as more than anything else in the world. And it, it doesn't mean that they won't let you down or disappoint you or that you might not get to the end and realize that maybe they weren't right for you. That maybe things are just, no matter how much you wanted it to be different, things aren't going to work out the way that you want it. And though we've come to the end of the road... Still, I can't, I can't let go. <laughs> and, and that may be where, where, where we sort of are uh, with Game of Thrones after, after season seven. That I, want, I don't want to let go. I, I, I want to believe with all my heart, as I have often felt in the past. I just, I would love to believe that it will show up for me and come through for me and, and be the show that I've always known deep down in its heart that it could be. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it's important to know that you can't really control what other people do. You can only control yourself and your own level of investment in it. Um, in the end, those are the only real choices we have. And, and is this the moment where we announce we're, we're not going to do this podcast next year? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm open to doing it. I'm open to doing it. I want, I want to keep my love alive. I'm not ready to break up, Spencer. I'm not ready. We've come so far on, you know, with this, with this story. Um, I'm looking up at my mantelpiece. I paid three digits worth of money for a replica long claw. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if I'm, if I'm, if I'm ready to, to, to give that sort up. I used it to garden at one point. That was a huge mistake. All we can do is, is control our behavior when, when we see that something is, is that we've invested so much in is, is not living up to our expectations and, and, and probably even cycle through, you know, were our expectations fair? Did we put too much onto the shoulders of this thing? Oh, I have, I have a lot of thoughts on that, but I don't think we have time for it this episode. We definitely don't. Uh, if, if we come back next season, which I'm totally open to doing, I have so many things I would like to share with you about expectations and, and how they've been cultivated within the show and within the books and so on and so on and so forth. So that's my teaser for our possible next season. You know, if we do this podcast again, uh, I just want to say what a great time I had doing it. Uh, I love talking about this with you. Um, I, I think that uh, judging from some of the reactions uh, we are filling a niche that, that some people in this fandom uh, definitely want scratched. Um, you know, perhaps not after we've, we've just, you know, 
approach it that harshly, but I think, you know, I think this fandom is, is, is ready. Um, I think we're probably not speaking just for ourselves. You think we don't do this out of love, Spencer? You think this is anything but love? This is, this is nothing but love. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. And I, that sounds sarcastic, but I actually mean it. I really do. I really do. And so on that note, um, thank you so much for, for sticking with us. Um, thanks very much to everyone whose hard work uh, at the Daily Beast has made this happen. Uh, thanks above all uh, to Jeremy Dalmas, our producer, mm-hmm. uh, who has salvaged this show uh, over two seasons for two different news organizations uh, and made us sound uh, definitely, I think, twice as smart as I am. At least. And and thank you again uh, to everyone uh, who's rated, who's reviewed this favorably. Um, tell us what you think of this one. Um, this has been Citadel Dropouts. It's been a Game of Thrones podcast for the Daily Beast. We'll see if we come back next year. Um, until then, Laura, where can people find you on the internet? They can find my Game of Thrones recaps or final recap at Wired, and they can find me on Twitter at Laura underscore Hudson. And I'm Spencer Ackerman. You can find me at the Daily Beast covering all types of national security stuff and on Twitter at Attackerman. Uh, We'll see you next year. We hope. Bye. Bye.